Hi there, I'm Word Burglar. And if you've got a problem with ninjas, you can just talk to the hand. <laughs> Welcome to a comic book themed episode of Weekend at Burgies. This weekend's podcast intro rap is brought to you by Grandpa Funny Book. Well, hey there, in case your brain won't focus, it's Grandpa Funny Book. You know this. I'm the creator of your favorite special characters like Darn Barnacle, the detestable Merida, or the not people. They were not people. There was a cot or a dino horse named Horsosaurus or the one who was a sports thesaurus. How many names are there for Highlight? I can't guess. Why try? That's nice. I like non sequiturs. My favorite tennis player is Federer. It's better than telling Momnipotent you did your chores when you didn't. Hint? Well, tell the hint discoverer. He looked in his pocket, became a lint uncoverer. <laughs> uh, I do that for me, guys. That's why we have... That's why we bring Grandpa on the show. It's it's just for me. It's it's my place. It's my podcast. It's my fun. <laughs> and I'm happy to share it with you. Welcome to episode 14 of Weekend at Bergie's. It's a crazy comic book jam-packed episode. Super excited. We've got comic book super guru and amazing friend Callum Johnston is hanging out with me this weekend. And if you don't know Cal... He's the owner of Strange Adventures Comic Book Shops, which are the world's greatest comic book shops, in my humble opinion. And he's also someone I consider family. I've known him since I was just a young punk, and, uh, well, he's, he's probably got a lot of dirt on me. <laughs> it's, uh, it's an honor to have him here hanging out, and we're going to get into some really cool insider comic book stuff. If you've ever loved comic books in any way, if you've ever set foot in a comic book shop, we're going to get into the origins of comic books into a whole other aspect of comics that you may not even think about yeah we got all the characters and everything but what about the comic shops you know let's uh it's interesting to me i think you're gonna really really dig it cal's a genius and a wonderful guy so so get excited that's happening in mere minutes and i'm pumped and if you are any kind of comic book lover you know that this weekend is a pretty big comic book weekend right it's free comic book day that's happening in comic book shops all over the world may 2nd don't know when you're tuning into this if you missed it then you'll have to mark it on your calendar for next year because uh that's it's the day around the world when you can just walk into a comic shop and get free comics you can bring a friend introduce them to some cool titles you guys know i'm a big i'm a big comic book lover there's no there's no denying that so I'm always happy to share that comic book love. Free comic book day. Uh, you want to get actually the Captain Canuck comic if you are hearing this in time to try and get to a comic book shop. Friend of the show and former guest, Kalman Androshovsky, has got the Captain Canuck comic dropping. So you want to check that out. There's a lot of good stuff coming out this weekend. I, I think you'll uh, you'll have fun if you uh, if you hit a free comic day event close to you. Also, there's kind of a big movie coming out this weekend. The Avengers, Avengers 2, Age of Ultron, kind of excited. Don't worry, no spoilers, I haven't seen it yet, but it's definitely quite possibly the biggest comic book movie of the year, I think that's that's safe to say, and I'm kind of excited, yeah, we know the Vision's in it, we know Scarlet Witch is in it, that's cool, cool Avengers, I want to I see some random, like, old school, rare super characters, you know, I'm looking for Tigra, I don't know if she's going to be in it, I extremely doubt that. Jocasta. Yocasta. Yocasta. Jocasta. 
Uh, moon Dragon. I'd like to see a little Moon Dragon or get like Angar the Screamer. <laughs> you know Angar? He's a real guy. Yeah, Angar. No, it's real. The Angar the Screamer. Uh, his real name, <laughs> I remember, it's, it's David. David Angar or Anger. <laughs> He's uh, he's actually it's an old uh, daredevil character who they I I forget his origin is there was something to do I think with the inhumans or someone he he was a hippie who wound up getting exposed to some sort of uh, I don't know he was bombarded with some kind of rays or something that affected his voice and uh, I, it gave him the powers to uh, to make people hallucinate when he screamed at them <laughs> or something. <laughs> Somebody out there can can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that's his 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 power. If he yells at you, you you start tripping out. <laughs> Angar the Screamer. He's real, too real almost. You gotta you gotta love comic books, right? Yeah, yeah. Speaking of Daredevil characters. Don't, no spoilers, don't worry, no spoilers. Uh, you're watching the show, the Netflix television show? I'm enjoying it. It's it's good. It's been a great combo. I'm noticing some hints of, of Frank Miller comics, some Bendis stuff, some of the Brubaker run. If, if you're into Daredevil, those are definitely some comic runs worth checking out. This is a fun fact for you because I was, I was hanging out with some people who did not know that the Kingpin is actually not a daredevil villain originally i mean obviously daredevil as kingpins become the major villain for daredevil over the years but he was originally a spider-man video a villain so i'm so excited to talk to you i'm getting tongue-tied kingpin was a spider-man villain originally so there you go fun fact fun fact i am excited to talk to you guys you were doing this once a month i've had a few people ask me what's happening with the podcast it's still coming out we're still it's once a month it's good we're actually we've been averaging more than one a month if you actually look at the calendar i'm trying to get them out as quick as i can i'm working on an album i'm working on a comic book i'm trying to do some stuff i would love to give you this podcast every week if i could and some months maybe we'll get a few extra episodes but i give you a berg guarantee that you'll get at least one episode a month. So how's that? You do want a new album though, right? Hopefully. I want a new, I want a new album. I'm excited. That's coming out. There will be news about that soon, but I can say August. That's that's all I can say uh, for now. What else was I saying? Daredevil? This is a comic book themed episode. So I hope you're on board. Buckle up for some a lot of comic bookery. Also, we've got Rap Viper t-shirts. If you've been on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash wordburglar, we have a Rap Viper t-shirt that we're going to launch. Cody Peters did the artwork. You know Cody. Drew Snake Horse Pizza. I did the cover to Bergie's Basement and Welcome to Cobra Island. Amazing, amazing artist. Great friend of mine. He made this kick-ass Rap Viper design, so we're bringing you a t-shirt, so check that out. What else is coming up? The comic book, Last Paper Route, is coming along. We're going to launch that in August at Decaf in Dartmouth is going to be the official launch of that. That's going to be August 16th at Decaf in Dartmouth, the Dartmouth Comic Arts Festival in Nova Scotia. And then we're going to have it at Fan Expo in Toronto. And, and then it'll be online and you can order it. And I'll, I'll, I'll be sure to tell you about it on the podcast. I don't want to ramble on about that, though, because we've got a great comic book guest here right now. More than just a comic book guest. He's a 
like I said, he's a comic book super guru, genius, enthusiast, supporter, great, great friend of mine. He oh, He's the owner of Strange Adventures Comic Book Shops, and if you're a comic book fan in the Maritimes, you definitely know Strange Adventures. He's got three shops, one in Halifax, one in Fredericton, one in Dartmouth. They're all incredible. I used to hang out there a lot when I was a kid. Obviously, I still hang out there now. And he gave me a job when I was in high school working at the comic shop. He taught me uh, a lot of the ropes of working in the comic book industry and introduced me to so many amazing comics. He uh, he actually, uh, I remember one of the earliest times hanging out with him, he corrected me because I used to call the Justice League villain character who you probably know as Darkseid. I used to call him Darkseid, and I'd, I'd be... That kid would be like coming in, is like, oh, I like that one where the Justice League is fighting Darkseed. <laughs> and then he would say, no, it's it's Darkseid, it's Darkseid. And I said, no, no, it's it's de- it's Darkseed. It's definitely Darkseed because in the arrogance of my youth and how I pronounced the name in my head when I was reading comics starring Darkseid, I would say Darkseed, and I just wouldn't accept that it, it could be pronounced Darkseid. So what did Cal do? He calls up DC Comics one day when I'm in the store, and I, I, I clearly remember he picks up the phone. And he's like, hello, is, is this DC Comics? Yes. Is it pronounced Dark Side or Dark Seed? And they, of course, said it's pronounced Dark Side, like the Dark Side of the Force, for example. And I was, I was shamed, and uh, I had been comic book schooled. That would happen many more times, and I it, it was all it was all in good fun, and he he still uh, we still have good laughs about it. But like I say, Cal introduced me to all kinds of great comic books over the years. But what we're gonna talk about now with Cal, if you've ever wanted to open a shop or wondered about what it's like, what actually happened, like where do comic shops come from? Let's be honest, they haven't been around forever. They started at some point in the 70s, 80s, 60s? Where did they begin? Where where are they going? Uh, and I'm very curious. This is stuff that really fascinates me, learning the history of the, the comic book store. Because as a comic book fan these days, you really do need a good comic book shop to find great books, to learn about new things, you know, for the community, supporting artists, and and all that jazz. And that's something that Strange Adventures has always done. You know I could just gush and go on about how great Cal is and the shop. And it's very great to have him here. So just curl up. We're going to have a very chill, relaxing comic book weekend at Bergie's with my good old pal, Cal Johnston. Corrected my pronunciation of a famous DC comic supervillain. That was early on when I was just a, a young punk. When you still came in the store with Donair Pizza. <laughs> that stuff was awful. That, you know, like, love King of Donair, love Sicilian, love, uh, was it European? What was the other one that was just down the street? Yeah, I never ate a European. There's was, KOD Was there another Sicilian? KOD just down the street for a while? Like, there was four there for a while. Yeah. And then the great pizza wars of whatever, 1990-something, and, you know, one fell, and then another. And now we're down to, I think, just one or two. You know? 
Yeah, the old KOD at the corner there is now uh, like a frozen yogurt place. Yogurt, yeah. Seems like a healthy restaurant in repl- to replace King of Donaire. And they had the Halifax Explosion poster up there for the longest time. We should do a proper, you know, print of that. Because that had uh, Nick Klein. Oh, yeah. And uh, Dave and Jay and Brad. Uh, Dave Cullen. Dave Cullen. Like, that had, you know, a real mixed bag of stuff. This was a comic book that we published in Halifax. It was many years ago. We were on, not Prisoners of Gravity, with Phil. The Anti-Gravity Room? The Anti-Gravity Room. Yeah. With it. And I remember we had the ad on the back for Strange Adventures, and our website was isisnet.ca <laughs> slash user slash, you know, it was very early on in the internet. Yeah. Uh, and these were acceptable website things. That was great. And th- yeah, this was a collaborative comic book that we all, the whole gang that used to hang out at Strange Adventures and yeah, Jay Silver. Mike Drake was drawn on, in the poster. He he has probably had more comic book appearances than me and I've had, I've bought a bunch of them. This is our old friend, Mike Drake, for people listening who may not know. And I, I made, I'm going to take credit for being the first guy to draw Mike Drake in a comic. I think it was in high school. I drew a, a picture of him. He was wearing uh, like a Shazam t-shirt. Captain Marvel, if yeah. you will, and the plaid and shirt and the glasses and the hair. You were saying that wherever you went, which also kind of bespoke about your scene stir ability, <laughs> uh, that wherever you went, you saw Mike Drake there. So you thought it would be a good idea to have him drawn in the background of every comic. And I think you've done so uh, throughout many years. Yeah, we've kept him in. He was a, the star of Scene Stir He was on the by cover Dave of the Coast, Cover, yeah. Drawn by uh, Brian Lee O'Malley and Hope yeah. Larson, I think. Um, and he was in an issue of uh, one of the, the uh, volumes of Scott Pilgrim oh. at one of the parties, of course. Yeah. Look for that, yeah. keen-eyed, eagle-eyed readers. Yeah. The Good Time, Strange Adventures. Cal, when did you first open in Halifax? Was that 95? 95, yeah, in uh, April. And that was... First of all things. So this is the 20th anniversary yep, for, the for the Halifax, Halifax show. show. Yeah. I've been at this since 92 and then working at other stores since... 70s, early 80s. So you opened your first shop in Fredericton, yeah. right? 92. And was that your own store? Or were you in the back of a record store? Was there nope, some sort um, of combo? I was on the second floor uh, above Neil Sports on Queen Street and uh, right beside Backstreet Records, which is still there. And that was part of the draw for the location was, yeah, it was cheap to get a second floor spot. And uh, you already had some built-in traffic with this venerable record store. And you kind of appealed to you know some of the same demographic People who enjoy listening to music might want to read a comic while doing so. It seems to be a combo that uh, withstood the test of time. It, it's kind of a collaborative thing rather than a competitive thing, which is kind of uh, something we encourage. And you start to see in a lot more independent businesses these days where they're looking at ways to work together. And like you were saying about the Halifax Explosion comic, I think almost every um, comic book store has wanted to or tried to, and many of of them have succeeded in publishing comics. I think Dark Horse Comics started out through some local comic stores in Portland or Oregon. Oh, somewhere. cool. I didn't know that. Yep. So you and Backstreet were there. This was 92. And had you worked at a comic shop prior to that? Yeah, I used to work at a place called Collector's Dream. Worked at Captain Quebec. Uh, helped out Max Seeley. Uh, so Captain Quebec, Captain Quebec was in Montreal. Yeah. 
They were um, sort of the first of the new wave of comic shops that opened in the 80s that were a little slicker, like appealing to what you might call the civilian market. Um, prior to that, there had been head shops, places like Multimag that were just an international magazine store that carried a huge pile of underground comics and independent comics. Like I, did, I couldn't even understand how they even got them, you know, but it was a great source for getting Freak Brothers and Zap. Um, and then Nova which was a science fiction bookstore that was split into comics and science fiction books. That seemed to be a way a lot of comic shops started up. Then after Captain Quebec, there was Comico that started. You know, just in Montreal, there was a nice little explosion of comic book stores. Mm -hmm. And you got that usual thing of bang, boom, pow, comics aren't just for kids. And DC implosion, late 70s, finally getting sort of restarted in the 80s with Dark Knight, Watchmen, and the growth of the direct market was uh, really kind of inspiring. Yeah, the direct market being actual comic book stores. Yeah. Because prior to that, let's say in the 1960s, you could only find comic books at a pharmacy, maybe a corner they, they store. They were done through newsstand distribution. Newsstands, yeah. Yeah, so that was a returnable system that where the publishers would print 200,000 copies, send them out through all these different distribution networks that were all over the country, um, the guys who deliver newspapers and magazines to Superstore and Atlantic News and, you know, all those kinds of places, they would have a comic rack there and they would sell a whole variety. And then every month they would just change out the old ones for the new ones, uh, refill it. The store would get charged just for the ones that sold. So it was a simple system, but you had to rely on overprinting, which was expensive. And as comic prices rose from like 10 cents to 12 cents, 15, 20, 25 all the way up. I know several people who quit buying new comics when they hit 35 cents because they're in their minds, if I couldn't get three for a dollar, it's not worth it. And several of my friends who did so, they kept collecting comics, but they were just doing so by mail order. They would tell me, I don't mind paying two or three dollars for a cool Batman from the 1960s, but I'm not paying for Firestorm, All-Star Squadron and Marvel Tales, you know, more than a dollar. Wow, and now comics, your average comics around three three ninety nine. Two ninety nine to three ninety nine is the average. You know, I don't know what your thoughts are. There's still some great ones out there, but I do find a worrisome thing is where I think consumers are seeing that there's not as much value in a single issue of a comic. Some are uh, perfect examples of what comics can be, but other ones like this is a chapter. This is so decompressed and slow. You know, well, the whole shift to graphic novel reading. The, and- the, yeah, the trade waiters as they're called by many of the comic store people. <laughs> Waiting for a trade paperback for the yeah. collection. So the direct market, I just want to stay on that for a second. When do you think it actually started in North America? Would this have been early 70s? Were the earliest shops in Quebec or was it Ontario no, it or York. West Coast? Um, the direct market kind of started out of um, a fellow named Phil Suling. He was a comic book dealer. You saw it grow through the, from the very beginning of comics, there was always people who were collecting You'd get them at the local stores. Through the years, you know, they start to want other ones that they didn't see at their local distributor. They might have been regional. So you start getting those networks through the mail of, hey, I've got these comics. I'm looking for those. Way before the internet. Exactly. Yeah. And you started up those things like APAs, which are amateur press associations, or, you know, you could call them zines or mini comics, or even just, you know, sort of chain letter groups they would have where you're... um, saying, I've got these issues, I'm looking for those issues. You'd write letters to the comics themselves. Like a lot of people met through the letters pages of things like Silver Surfer, the old EC comics. 
And then we'd start a fan club that way for you know, cool things and then died off through whatever year. I'm sure there's some fan clubs still going. Now. Yeah. Um, I, I heard a great story about how Richard and Wendy Peeney met. They were, they're the creators of ElfQuest. And Wendy Peeney wrote a letter to Silver Surfer. And I guess she was one of the first female fans to have her letter published in a, in the back of a Marvel comic book. And she got, and they published her address and she got hundreds of correspondence and she (laughs) the only one she responded to was Richard Peeney, who I guess wrote her a really well-written letter and they met. And next thing you know, they wind up getting married and create ElfQuest. But this was the, that's just a sense of the community Mm. from let's say the the early sixties. Uh, and but it, you'd get commercially minded guys who would be like, well, I can make some money doing this. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that piece on, um, Captain George's comic shop in, uh, Toronto. Um, he ran a store I think called memory lane. Okay. Um, if you get a chance to talk to Darwin, he's got some stories about it. Cause I think he's been there a few times and it was a comic book store that it was a used bookstore essentially that had tons and tons of comics old movie memorabilia, you know, stuff from old theaters where they were lobby cards. I don't know whether he was just going to the flea market. So he was raiding the old buildings or, you know, where he got the cool stuff, but he had an amazing selection of material. There's a great bit on the CBC archives where they had one of those, you know, stand up stories about, uh, the little store here in Toronto is selling comic books of all things. And you have a great shot of the interior of the store and fellow fellows are fingering through all these comics on the rack that are these beautiful silver age books you're just like oh my god can i please go back in time and get these um you know it's really kind of neat a fellow named uh, george olszewski went on to do the marvel indexes through the 70s he shows up in the the little short clip and uh, george used to do these reprints of comics called captain george's whiz bang that reprinted like what he thought, I think, were open or public domain books, which probably right, he didn't have the rights to. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if he ever got you know in legal trouble for it, but you can see these Captain George's whiz bangs around Toronto mostly because it was a regional thing in the sixties. Okay, yeah. so would, is he considered sort of the first comic shop in Canada? Would you say uh, Captain I would George? Think so, yeah. but there's probably the the reason his is thought so is because I think um, he was so specialized. And he had that piece on the news, and he was in Toronto, which is sort of the, you know, one of the bigger cities. I'm sure there's probably a similar piece in Montreal's archives, you know, about a French store selling used books, but that, that had a lot of asterisks and Tintin and Pilot and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a shop in Ottawa called Arthur's Place that was used books, tons of comics, old records, and it had been around since the early 70s, I think. And there was a great record store that also sold some books in Montreal called Cheap Thrills. It had one of the best catch catchy tunes just these deep guys going cheap thrills cheap thrills (laughs) do you remember what the first comic shop you were in was i think it was nova it was was the first one i was in Uh, and that's montreal how old were you maybe kid teenager no early teens yeah just trying to think i'd been going there for a while before i picked up things like nexus and captain victory Mm -hmm. It was probably around 1980 or so. Do you remember what your first comics were, like as a kid? Well, as a kid, I mean, they were adventure comics and Superman and Richie Rich and Archie's and uh, Superboy and the Legion, Batman's, Brave and the Bold's, like a whole mix of stuff. And you were hooked early on. Yeah. Like like, all of us. I don't know who had them in the house, but that was one of the things is comics were a lot more ubiquitous when we were young and certainly going back, you know, 70, 80 years where they were available at more outlets. 
That's one of the things. I mean, Archie Digest, you still still see at some of the grocery store checkouts. That's one of the problems we have with comics. That's oh, one of yeah, the things I used to get a digital lot of digest. Helps. Yeah. You know, like you could say the digital stuff helps because uh, people are exposed to them a little more. It's, it's so much nicer to hold a book in your hands. I mean, I much prefer the experience of interacting, flipping the pages. My big problem with digital comics is I don't want to get interrupted. If I'm reading on my phone or something or you have an iPad, I don't want to be getting text messages and emails. I know you can turn that off, but mm-hmm. when you read a book, you're not gonna, it's not going to interrupt you. I think that's one of the things, the tactile nature of the uh, physical comics, I think, are always going to be a positive. Uh, I'm sure there's some folks who much prefer digital, but most of the people I speak to still appreciate the tactile nature. Nothing beats it. And the smell, like, of old comics. I mean, I can pick up a comic from the 80s, and I remember the smell of this paper when they switched the the different papers. So at what point did you realize, hey, I'm going to open up my own shop? Um, always wanted to, um, what led to me opening was just that the shop I was at, uh, it was at the end of sort of the card speculator boom and the shop had been dealing mostly in cards. So this would have been, let's say mid eighties, late eighties. This was uh early nineties, early nineties. So yeah. card like baseball cards and hockey cards were kind of on the way out. Oh no, they, they were still selling well, but they were available at so many more locations. There, there was just no money in it. Like people were buying up boxes of cards for whatever the wholesale cost was and selling it for a dollar or two more that you know you couldn't make money at mm-hmm. and then everyone was sort of sinking quickly it was just a bad scene overall yeah now the early 90s is sort of famous for having a huge boom in comic shops because of all the specialty covers and was it because of that you think the speculator shift combined with yes. the huge the growing I, fan base i think it was a, it was one of those perfect storms where you had things like the batman movie because uh, i was working in a comic store during the tim burton batman movie was that 89 that was 88 or 89 yeah and the a crazy explosion in the variety of products that a comic store was carrying emblazoned with the bat logo or the, just the words Batman was crazy. Mm-hmm. So Dark Knight Returns would have been big there, the comic. And uh, then the, the and comic was Killing huge, Joke, probably. But when the, and Killing Joke was massive. Yeah. Uh, but when the Batman movie came out, just any kind of book, toy, magazine, cars, bubblegum, you name it, sweatpants, suspenders, ties. Death in the Family, like Dark Knight. I don't remember. I used... David know the Death of the Family stories better because he was involved in Oh, yeah, voting. For people listening who don't know you, the fan, DC invited fans to write in. Was it a 1-900 number? Was it a number? Yeah. It was something you had to pay for. And I think Dave had a good story about how. Is our buddy Dave Howlett, yeah. You know, about, okay, it's going to cost 90 cents or a buck 50 or whatever the cost is. I'll cover it, but yeah, I want to vote. And he voted to kill. <laughs> <laughs> he voted to kill Robin. That's what you DC said. Do you yeah. want us to kill Robin or, yeah. or, oh, vicious, vicious. So that 90s boom of all the comic shops, so you opened 92, what were, would have been the big titles there, aside from all the Batman craziness? What was sort of, when you opened, what was the book that was flying off the shelves? This was right at the time uh, Image was starting up. So Spawn number one, Youngblood number one, um, Wildcats number one, Savage Dragon number one. All those things were coming out at the time. There was a huge problem with supply because no one knew how to order these things. Are these going to be any good? Then images scheduling went completely out the window. 
the books sold really well when they came out, but there was few and far between who were able to keep up the schedule. So you saw things like Dragon was on a higher number. Spawn was doing quite well. Wildcats had had like three or four issues out or something like mm -hmm. that. And lots of other things like that. But they were, they were all uh, explosive big hits in comics. And the Superman death was the big thing. Brought in a lot of media. Right. Death of Superman. Yeah. That was a big deal. That was a brilliant move on I, DC's part, right? I really liked how the Superman books were being run at the time. I wasn't a fan necessarily myself, but they were selling well to a good cross-section of people. In case you weren't aware, there was four Superman titles at the time, Action Comics, Superman, Adventures of Superman, and Superman Man of Steel. And they were all on their own schedule, but one would come out each week, and they had a smaller little what we call triangle number, a little Superman symbol kind of thing with a number in it. So if you picked up four issues at once of the various books, you knew which order to put them in. And so they were able to turn four monthly titles into a weekly. And then they even added a quarterly book called Superman Man of Tomorrow to fill in the four weeks a year that there weren't the other titles. And it did phenomenally well. And then led up to Death of Superman, continued on to the return of Superman, the funeral for a friend, uh, World Without a Superman. All the four, uh, the four, the four different new guys, which ran for another year or so. Yeah. Like th this was... Kind of like the way Marvel did with Superior Spider-Man. This was big news. You, you knew he'd be back. Like the same way with Superior Spider-Man. I was amazed they ran as long as they did. The Superman books, the same thing. And then you started to get the whole story, and there's that giant collection, The Return of Superman, that you can read and enjoy. And that was huge. We brought in tons of people. Batman books were doing the same between Batman and Detective, mm -hmm. running back and forth. Uh, most of the Nightfall series right. created a big crossover. That was where Batman's back got broken yeah. by Bane. Which was fine for the event, but also kind of ruined a lot of the other series because I find a lot of people enjoy reading Batman, but they just want to read one series. One of the problems I have today with the Batman books, you keep forcing people to buy all of them, which draws them away more than pulls them into the other series. Mm -hmm. You know, it's short-term gain for long-term loss. It's harder to jump on to. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Where, now back back to the 90s, people were jumping on like crazy. With all the image boom, the death of Superman, there was media attention left, mm -hmm. right, and center. You had Wizard Magazine fueling the speculator. It, it ran into a bit of problems because... Anytime something gets popular, I mean, as we were saying before, with a bit of a perfect storm, you had all these big media events happening in comics, uh, like the death of Superman, which broke out of the world of just the comic fans themselves. Then the craze among the comic fans for things like Valiant Comics, uh, right. some of the Dark Horse stuff with the movies and the uh, and Image Comics, fueling you know, collectors and get them getting their friends into it. So it grew somewhat naturally and then somewhat unnaturally because people were merely speculating. And then the introduction of like the variant covers with the image coupons. Right. And that was to get image zero. Image zero. You save seven coupons from all the different books. Which was supposed to have the origin of the savage dragon that everyone was waiting for for yeah. so long. That was really the key thing in there. Yeah, and then I think there was was there a Sam Keith story in it or something? There was something from most of the image founders. And Liefeld did something. So the big thing I remember about the 90s was there's all this craziness, let's say early 90s. Then around 94, 95 things were kind of slowing down. All the 
a lot of the artistic talent had left Marvel. So Marvel was scrambling to to create new stuff and, yeah. and have they had a lot of artists who were mimicking the styles of Lee and McFarland and, and these guys. And that, not very well. Not very well. They had seemed to completely abandon any care for stories and the characters. Uh, it's your really good Marvel stories they, are they few and far between in the mid to late nineties. As you'd probably call the sixties, the Marvel age, or at least they like to, and it certainly could be phrased that way. Yeah. A, a portion of the silver age should probably be called the Marvel age. Yeah. Um, the mid nineties are the dark ages for DC as well, for many comic publishers, but mostly for Marvel, that tail run of amazing Spider-Man, the, the X, this X, that, there was a lot of really bad stuff. And as a comic book fan, I was in my, you know, I was buying everything. I was into everything. In the mid-90s in Halifax, just on Quimple Road alone, I think there were three different shops. There was First Stop. You had a little shop of comics. Yeah. And, and Million uh, Comics? Yeah, Million that? Comics became First Stop. There was a, a sports card store. Then around the corner on Roby, you had Wilkie's. And then we had Odyssey downtown. But then things started drying up. Shops were closing left, right, and center, and well, finding a good place to get comics was really, really hard until... The, the speculator boom killed a lot of stores yeah. because these were folks who were coming into stores and buying 10 copies and 20 copies of different books. Uh, the early Marvel successes, like Spider-Man number one by Todd McFarlane, just prior to Image's launch, um, X-Men number one, X-Force number one, created those guys as superstars because every one of them uh, had five covers. There were different hoops you had to jump through. The Spider-Man one had the regular newsstand edition, then the black cover with the silver ink, then bagged editions of both. Then there was UPC variants. Then there was the second print with gold. And that made people go crazy. And Todd McFarlane had royalties coming off that. I'm sure he did very well, but of course it also led to the artists banding together and you know, two years later, gone and over to Image, um, you know, and mixing all those things together, a lot of stores were buying non-returnable and just swimming in product when the market kind of fell in on itself as far as the collectors went. The mm -hmm. comics were still good. There's still lots of good material being published. Love and Rockets was still going, Fantagraphics, yeah. some great stuff, Dark Horse, DC, Marvel even had a few gems here and there, uh, even in, you know, collecting some of their back stock or backlist. So, you know, it wasn't horrible, horrible, but it did cause a lot of stores to close just because not being well run. Right. That, that's one of the detriments of any kind of independent business is in many cases, myself included, we are not trained business people. We are folks who love what we do and what we sell. And sometimes they're successful business-wise and sometimes they're not. Hopefully you're in a good time where things will get better, but certainly in the early 90s, mid-90s, there was a time where it really folded in on itself. Yeah, and as a comic book fan, this is where I wanted to go. Me and Alex Kennedy, my best pal, you know Alex well, we were collecting comics and scrambling to find different issues and certain shops had stopped ordering titles and it was, it was getting harder to find stuff that we really liked. And then one day Alex says to me, Hey, this new comic shop just opened up. You got to check it out. They have a couch. <laughs> and that shop. And a fish tank. And a fish tank. And a really cool old TV and a console. 
and a welcoming environment and an owner who was super knowledgeable and friendly and there were paintings on the walls and that was Strange Adventures. And that's the first time I met you. Alex brought me in. And I, when I saw that couch alone, just I thought, hey, that makes perfect sense. You want to sit down, you want to read, but there was so much more to your shop and you had such a great selection. Obviously now to this day you do, but at the time in Halifax, you had comics I had never seen before. I had never heard of, well, you, you just mentioned Love and Rockets. I'm just thinking anything, any of the indie alternative press stuff, um, you were bringing in Mage and any kind of black and white comics that I'd never seen before. Your selection was amazing and... I had instantly got introduced to all these new titles. What made you decide, hey, I'm going to open up a shop here in Halifax right now? Just at a time when it did seem like the comics, there had been the, I guess there was, it was a bit of a crash in the, oh, yeah. in the 90s. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm also a bit of a, a firm believer that uh, that old field of dreams adage, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. You know, like um, comics, I, I think, certainly are an entertainment uh, medium. And they're not what you might call necessary, but if introduced to them, I think you enjoy them a lot more than you don't. So you did build it, and they did come. You had a welcoming shop. You encouraged the local comic community, the indie comic scene. All kinds of different artists started coming there. You were publishing anthologies. When did the Strange Adventures anthology start? Was that when you were in Fredericton? In Fredericton started it, and we still have a few stories from 10 years or so ago that we haven't had a chance, or I haven't had a chance to put together. I'd really like to um, even just get them back in print or do a new edition or something, because there was some great fun comics in those. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, a few years later, we did the Stunt Dog one that had some fun strips yeah. and uh, the Super Snipe collection of Dave's and uh, Jay's uh, Super Snipe comics. There's a lot of uh, just fun stuff you can do. Yeah. Who were some of the artists in those, like the early contributors to um, the Strange Adventures? Nick Klein and uh, Dave McGraw. Nick Klein who's now doing Image, he Drifter at Image. Drifter. He yeah. did Captain America, you know, tons yeah. of uh, stuff. And uh, Andrew Debley did some uh, terrific stories. Uh, Scott Tobin did Scott, some. Scott Tobin. Yeah. Tim Martin uh, did some. Yeah. There's a lot of people who were involved. Yeah. <laughs> How many of those volumes did you put out? There were at least seven, I six th- or seven before Stunt it was Dog. Six. Six, yeah. And then, or it may have been seven. It was around there. And uh, Yeah, I contributed early on to that. I mean, you really encouraged me, and I, I owe you so many thanks for all the years that you have encouraged me and mentored me and supported me in all my artistic pursuits and so many other artists. And I remember bringing you the comic that Alex and I had been working on. Motorcycle Ninja. Yeah. <laughs> Motorcycle Maniac. Yeah. Motorcycle Maniac. There were ninjas. We were doing Chop Suey. We had all these comics. And I gave you an anthology that we had made, which was just us drawing comics in the back of our French class and then photocopying them, I think, at the Shoppers Drug Mart. And... One was a, it was, it contained a motorcycle maniac story who was just basically Lobo on a motorcycle. And then there was a story that was a Watchmen spoof. And then we had a comic about uh, our adventures as paper boys. And I remember you saying, that's the story you should be telling. That was the one that I felt had the most accessibility. Um, Because 
yes, everyone has motorcycles and we're all familiar with ninjas and many of us grew up being maniacs. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the adventures in paper We were kids, you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the, the adventures in paper routing, I, I found I had been a paper boy. Uh, my wife had had a paper route. Uh, lots of people either had it or were familiar with it. So I just thought, this is funny. And then, you know, just seeing the adventures of... Uh, Alex and Sean or Nas and Zila trying to collect, you know, and the number of people just reminded me of the old Batman TV show with the celebrities coming out of the door or the windows as they were climbing up a building that you didn't know who was behind these doors. And I could just see the the visuals in that would be very funny. Oh yeah. We had so much fun doing them and then we explored it for many years to come. And now we're working on the new one. It all comes full circle, but enough, enough about me. When you opened the shop in 95, do you remember what the big books were then? Like Vertigo was sort of, was thriving, I think, amongst the the major publishers at the time, right? Vertigo was hot stuff, and we were still seeing the growth of the graphic novel or trade paperback mm. as a collection and uh, seeing the number of people who were able to pick those up and, and that it also made new inroads into the general bookstores and the mainstream bookstores. Um, for us, the Vertigo books... It was created in a good way because DC had a number of series, including Sandman and Swamp Thing, that were doing well, and Hellblazer, um, that appealed to a certain demographic, a certain audience, but that audience was having difficulty in finding it. Certainly any comic shop worth their salt was having everyone who reads Sandman try out Swamp Thing or vice versa and continue on like that. So it was an effort in order to help brand their books a little bit. And uh, it worked immensely well because a good portion of the material was really top-notch, good quality, so it had a good response. Mm-hmm. People were eating the stuff up. And then in the mid-'90s, uh, Garth Ennis's Preacher was probably the biggest thing for us. Right. You know, it was like having X-Men again. Yeah, and that and Vertigo with Preacher, with, with the Sandman collections, they were really the forerunners in, like you were saying, the graphic novel. Like, had you, could you have foreseen the way graphic novels and collections are now? I mean, now everyone knows the term trade paperback or graphic novel, and most people read their comics that way. Like, that's... Yeah. Um, you know, the, the history of the graphic novel is argued about in many ways. You could call so many different things a graphic novel, going back to, like, the late 1800s or the some woodcut stuff from the early uh, 20th century. Um, certainly what we think of as the graphic novel, many people look at uh, Will Eisner's Contract with God, which was in the late 70s, or Don McGregor and Paul Galassi's Saber, which were, uh, you know, Contract with God was a collection of four short stories around a simple, uh, singular theme or location. Saber was one story, more like a screenplay or a, a movie, you know, put on paper. Um, and then seeing series like um, Dark Knight and Watchmen were really the key to it. Because all through the 70s and 80s, you had those Bonanza books and Fireside books, mm-hmm. Son of Origins. Yeah, the Marvel Bring on the bad reprints. guys. They, they were kind of gifty items. Mm-hmm. They would be produced around summer. Uh, in the UK, they do those hardbound annuals yeah. where they would just sort of put a collection of Batman comics together. Because, hey, kids are out of school, let's have something for them to read. And similar to the digest you had mentioned you'd get at the grocery store. Yeah. I remember getting those DC, DC and Marvel. Uh, the Blue Ribbon Digest. Yeah, Marvel's yeah. Digest. And Archie still has them now. And yeah. They're still doing, I mean, they're still producing them and they're getting thicker and thicker. I don't know if you've seen some of those 
thousand page Archie Digest. Wow. No. They're between like nine and fourteen bucks. That's crazy. Yeah. They're a great deal. Like if you're going away in the summertime, throw one of those in the back seat of your car. Kids of any age, adults even, are going to be entertained for quite yeah. a while. And there's so many different little short stories. Great idea. I would love to see Marvel or DC put something together, just reprinting old 60s or 50s comics like that. That would be a great fun, um, a great fun comic. <laughs> a great uh, fun uh, comic. Yeah. <laughs> something, right. something uh, uh, Grandpa Funny Book would have. Uh, oh, that yeah, was a great fun comic. No, these were new animals. Like uh, having a comic book store order 10 copies, 30 copies of a book that was $20 when comics were between a dollar and a dollar 75. That was crazy because comics being periodicals, it was fill and kill. Here's the new issue of this next month. There's a new issue of that. So we're done with the old one. Comic book stores, uh, helped find a, a, a market for the back issues by having those old issues around. But now with a uh, focus on telling these short stories like dark Knight and watchmen, you wanted to put it out as a singular volume. And that appealed to a whole new brand of people, um, which was a new audience for many comic stores. Mm -hmm. And go they got into the libraries and made it a little more legitimate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and so that you've seen a lot of comic stores make the switch from being a periodical based to more of a bookstore based business. Mm -hmm. Some are going more towards the toys. You know, I think in many cases you almost need a reclassification of. There are, you can call them comic stores or geek stores or nerds, whatever you want to use as your terminology, but some stores are geared more towards the tourist trade. You'll see those uh, sort of hot topic stores, almost like in an airport or shopping mall. They might have comics, but it's going to hit a different group than a store on Young Street or a store on Queen Street. You know, What do you like to see in a comic shop? Whatever you're looking for. I mean, because... <laughs> yeah. um, you want it to reflect your tastes, but also you're the, the best judge of what you like. So in order to try and appeal to a lot of people, have some thought and taste in what you're bringing in. Curate the collection a little bit. Sure, there's a lot of stuff we carry that I'm not a huge fan of, but it's just not to my liking. But I've been visibly you know, illustrated by folks who are coming in looking for different things. There is a demand for this. Mm -hmm. That's going to come with experience. I think you have to start with what you like and then start to respond to your customers' needs. So what were you looking for? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you're going to Comics Pro, which is a conference for comic book retailers? Yeah. Uh, comics Pro is the trade organization for comic retailers, uh, mostly in the States, but they have members in Canada, uh, the U.K., I think there's a guy in Israel and some in Australia and New Zealand. And it's the annual members meeting. So this is like the secret Illuminati of comic shop owners, would you say? Um, maybe. No. Yes and no. To the layperson. Uh, maybe not within the industry, but to the layperson. There's a lot of big stores who aren't part of it because they feel that, uh, you know, for whatever reason, they might have lots of different reasons. My own opinion is that in some cases you're like, well, I don't want to trade trade secrets mm -hmm. to people who could be viewed as my competitors. So it would be the same thing where um, certainly in, you know, some say hotel organizations or touristy groups, you may not have some of the big guns involved. Uh, but there are a lot of bigger chain stores and groups, uh, part of Comics Pro. And then this is a great opportunity for the publishers and creators of comics and people involved in the, the comic book world to address 
the industry, um, you know, a couple hundred stores who make up a good portion of the direct market. Mm-hmm. And you can really make or break a book. I don't know if you'd break one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but you definitely make one, yeah. But certainly uh, getting the word out through, these are all um, professional stores for the most part, progressive stores for the most part, people who are interested in the industry. Like just being a member, I think you're showing a little more fortitude and um, looking out for the industry as a whole um, because that's what the aim is, is mm-hmm. to help brick and mortar comic book stores. The only way we're going to survive and continue to thrive is with a thriving comic book industry. And that's all aspects, whether it's back issues or graphic novels or the comic books themselves, the magazines, the periodicals, supplies for them, and then the ancillary products like some games, toys, tie-ins, different things like that. What are the types of things that different retailers will talk about at these at these meetings like do you do you share stories like crazy what i would call comic shop irregulars yeah <laughs> uh, is always a funny one because yeah. like in the early 90s i drove down to uh portland maine to uh visit casablanca comics and they were having a dave sims signing for cerebus and we wound up going out for dinner and rick the owner of casablanca comics and i were monopolizing the conversation dave was having a great time but he was just sort of tuning in to what two disparate comic shops are talking about and what we had in common. And it was a lot of fun noticing that we have this one guy who comes in and he does this, or he's always looking for this, or she does this, or she's always after this character. And we're both quite amazed by going, I have that same person. I I find that always fascinating. You've got one, you've got a customer who's, they only like the, the Superman comics where he goes to Supertown. Or, or, or you got any Elseworlds? I love those Elseworlds. That's all I read, the Elseworlds. Elseworlds. You got the one where Batman's in Elseworlds? Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, you mentioned For the listeners, something like that. Yeah, Elseworlds are, how would you describe Elseworlds? Well, they're, no, they're, they're another kind of world like a, of A Batman. reimagining of a character saying, yeah. Batman, what if he was in the 1880s? Or yeah. Batman, what if he was a pirate? Yeah. Or, Superman, what if he landed in the Soviet Union instead of Kansas? Uh, they're great stories for the most part. They're really good. It's oh, yeah. just funny when you do meet folks who are very hung up on one particular thing. Yeah. You know? yeah. Everyone's, I mean, we all have our idiosyncrasies. People knows what, know what they like, yeah. 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 Oh, I'm me, the same you know, way, yeah. You, you talk to any comic shop owner, it's like, how do you uh, bag and board? <laughs> do you use the shiny side of the board or the not shiny side of the board against the comic? This is a debate that you know, has raged and for years. Do you like the comic bags that have a flap or that are evenly cut? And do you use one piece of tape or two? And do you use magic tape or the proper scotch tape? The foggy like, tape, right? The foggy yeah, tape. The foggy un- tape. It untapes easier. It does untape easier. There you go. These are great tips on the weekend. You know, if you're um, bagging your comics. Now, the boards, do you have to use the shiny side? Whatever. What do you want to do? Well, Either I thought one. there was chemical treatment on the shinier side of the board, so it may eventually, coating, the coating, yeah. But it's also up against a coated stock of a comic book. I don't think there's going to be any problem. It for looks me, nicer having that behind it. Yes, and mm-hmm. for me, I do it that way because the other side allows you to put a rubber stamp. These are important questions, so Cal. you can put the Strange Adventures rubber stamp on the backing board, and it's a lot of fun. You know the old scene in the Looney Tunes cartoon? where Bugs Bunny or someone throws a baseball around the world, comes back with all the stamps. Yeah. I love when we get comic collections in and someone's, you know, the back issues in it have 
an Odyssey 2000 stamp, and then it's also got a Million Comic stamp, and then finally a Strange Adventure stamp. These are other comic shop stamps, yeah. yeah. And you just kind of track, oh, this comic has been through this kind of history. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. kind of interesting. You know, you don't see them very often, but it is a little fun. I find that so fascinating in the collections, because working in a shop, people bring you collections all the time to sell. And recently you just got, was it the Banana Box Collection? Is that what you're calling it? I call it the Hubbard's Collection. Cregan, a friend of mine, calls it the Banana Box Collection. It was just a beautiful collection of old Golden Age comics in the late 1940s, early 1950s. Wow. And arrived in banana boxes. I love banana boxes. Now, a banana box is an actual box that at one point was for bananas. Yeah. It's you, not a, you yeah. You see that they're big cardboard boxes. Um, where the top fits over the bottom, so it's double-walled. There's a big square opening in the bottom, the big square opening in the top to allow air to go through, and there's sort of handles cut in the side, so they're easy to use, and they're very thick, really durable. You can fit about five or six stacks of comics in there, or books or whatever, so they're very useful you know, for people who are moving, um, and these are what the food distributors would use to drop off at your grocery store, and then they would get reused or turfed out and recycled or whatever. But every time someone has come in with banana boxes, it's always been good stuff, like a collection of Bronze Age 1970s Marvels or uh, a bunch of 80s stuff, but it was all in order and, you know, good runs of Spider-Man or Batman, stuff like that. And then this collection that was all Golden Age material, which you know was just terrific. A lot of Canadian editions, a lot of comics that I'd never seen before. Wow. What were some of the gems in this one? Um, early action comics, a Batman number 50, a Batman 44, um, a lot of adventure comics, huge number of Westerns, Roy Rogers, some in beautiful condition, some in rough shape. But that's the other nice thing with the a stack of comics with banana boxes. Yeah, the top and the bottom get a little grimy at times if they've been in a garage or an attic. But the middle ones, because of the pressure of the books themselves, kept them in pretty nice Interesting, shape. Interesting, yeah. So, and there's Human Torch, um, a great series from Marvel that I was I had heard of the name before, the Blonde Phantom. I don't know that one. It was a 1940s Marvel superhero, a girl who uh, would change into an evening dress, a, a mask, and a 45, and take out bad guys. And her comic had a backup story a backup series featuring Namor, the Submariner. So Namor was a backup to the the Blonde Phantom. Um, There was a great one of outlaw women, and it's all these tales of the women uh, cattle rustlers and bank robbers of the 1800s. Yeah, (laughs) Um, yeah, there's great stuff. And the large portion of it seemed to be owned by uh, one girl from Hubbard's, and I think she was part of a ring of collectors because a lot of the comics have other names written on them, so you can imagine they were probably trading comics back and forth. You just wanted to make sure you got yours back. So Interesting stuff to see. That's really cool. Is that one of the more memorable collections you've had like That's recently? the most memorable one. I've, I mean, I've really? had the chance at an auction to buy Amazing Fantasy 15. Um, I had a fellow bring in Amazing Spider-Man 1 to 38. Wow. I had a fellow out of the West Coast contact me with Mad Magazine one to 30 wow. that were all the original comic books. And then the first few of the magazines, those are all terrific. This one, I'm still discovering things in it. Wow. You know, um, kid Colt number two, yeah. uh, just, you know, really odd and obscure comics. I've never seen some of these before and, uh, trying to research them is even an, an adventure. 
A strange adventure. A strange you, adventure. You might, you might say. One might say. A few years ago, you found me a the G.I. Joe Treasury Edition, number one, the big, the oversized Marvel comic, and it came with a certificate from the IRS collection. Do you remember what that was about, what the IRS collection was? I, I don't remember the exact details regarding the individual, but uh, someone had owed back taxes, or, you know, burned a lot of money somehow, whatever it was, they owed the government a lot of money. And one of the things that was confiscated or foreclosed upon, uh, I think was, you know, the fellow's house, all his belongings, and this huge comic book collection that was a pedigreed collection. These were all high-end key issues in very high grades, all like fine, very fine or better. And it included just thousands of things. And someone either, either at the IRS or someone involved in appraising the comics came up with the idea, let's make this a pedigreed collection by saying it's part of the IRS the collection. The IRS collection, yeah, yeah. And so the information, I think, is on the, the certificate of authenticity, yeah. but that just added a little extra gem to, yeah. you know, if you have the opportunity to buy a G.I. Joe Treasury Edition, which isn't, you know, it's it's a rare item, but it's not a crazy hot collectible. Yeah. But if you have the choice between it and the one that's with the IRS certificate, yeah. I mean, of course you're going to give that one a try. It just makes things a little more interesting. It's got a bit of mystique to yeah. it, the yeah. IRS collection. When I was working at the Silver Snail, there was a collection that Ron, the owner, had bought. And every issue, it was a bunch of Silver Age Marvels, some great, really, really early X-Men, Spidey, Daredevil, and Avengers and they were in beautiful shape, except every single cover in the top right-hand corner had been punched with a hole punch that was shaped like a heart. So it had this heart-shaped hole punch in the corner. So it became known as the Heart Collection. And despite you might say, well, it, the cover has been damaged, but the comics were in beautiful shape, but they all had this little hole punch, and you could find it. And still, every now and then, I'll, I'll see one of these issues because— there must have been you know, hundreds and hundreds yeah. of these comics, that and you, you see the heart. Individuals, yeah. you know, way of making sure that their comics, her, his or hers, came back to them. Yeah. when loaned out to friends. Yeah, you know, I used to just write my name on the inside cover. Uh, then you see the kids. I think I showed you the one from the Hubbard's collection, where you got one of those stamp kits where you could put your own name together, and all of a sudden you're rubber stamping everything in sight. Yeah, you know. Uh, a lot of times you'll see comics with the date stamps on the cover from the corner store because that was just a reminder as to when to pull these off sale or when they arrived. In most cases, a thing like that I don't think hurts the value too much. It kind of adds a little something like the heart clip out. If it's not, you know, in the middle of a character's face or something mm -hmm. like that, you could almost forgive it. And also where it has that bit of that uh, you know, notoriety of being part of this collection. The heart collection, yeah, I, I always like that. You had someone at Hardbound. Was it early Fantastic Fours and Spider-Mans? Yeah. And how did that work? They took the original issues they, and he was a actually he was a newspaper boy and spent his money buying comics and noticed at the library they had McLean's magazine, Life magazine, Time magazine in hardbound collections. And he had the idea that this would be a good idea. I should try this. Unfortunately, the only thing at his disposal was a three-hole punch and a binder. Uh, a three ring binder. So some of his early issues of Spider-Man and Fantastic Four were hole punched. And these are really early issues. These right? are the number one, oh. number two, number three. And uh, then when he was able to raise a little bit of money, took them to a book binder 
and had them properly bound. So from about Amazing Spider-Man number 16, about Fantastic Four 12 or so, they were in nice shape. And they still had the gloss on the cover. All the ads were there. They're irrevocably in those hardcovers. Um, beautiful editions. I've had a couple of hardcovers done myself of just series like American Flag or Nexus. Any of those series that at the time weren't available in trade paperback. It's kind of a nice way to just put your own comic collection together and you can just pull it off the shelf. I'm not worried about the condition of them. They're never going to be sold. These are mine forever. Yeah. You know, it's really convenient. And it's also kind of nice to be able to build your own library and, you know, design the spine, yeah. your name on it. This is, you know, Cal's collection, volume one, it's Sean's genius. favorite comics. And that's the great thing about comics. Everyone collects the stuff they like. Everyone's collection is different, no matter how you store them, how you display them, how you, you just build your collection. Some people follow individual artists or characters or. That's something to go back to talking about comics pro and what we talk about as comic shop owners. Uh, I notice it whenever I'm at a convention where there's a lot of back issues being sold, how you sort your back issues, mm -hmm. how you sort your individual comics once they're bagged and boarded or, or bound in some way. If you're interested in action adventure, whether it's Superman, Batman, Spider-Man or X-Men, that should all be in one area. And also just methods of getting new people inside the store. Yeah. That's the other thing we talk about a lot is what worked, what didn't. Um, we set up the ladies' nights that has spread across comic stores around Canada and the yeah, US now, and around the world. You started ladies' night. Yeah. You guys started that with uh, Tina. Tina. Like, Tina I, Johns. I hit up with, I was talking to Tina and Rochelle at the shop on Sackville Street and saying, I had this idea. I want to run it by you guys first to see do you think this is offensive or is this funny or is this a good idea? You know, this is the idea of having a, a night, an after hour sale, ladies only, all run by the girls, boys are not allowed, we're next door at the pub reading some comics. And do a little sale, get some gift bags, make it like a thing they would do at the Clinique or the body shop or uh, a hair salon, an Avon party, something like that. And the idea was to appeal to girls who are already reading comics so they could meet other girls who are reading comics, mm -hmm. but also to any of the women and girls who wanted to read comics or heard about them, but their only exposure has been the bookstore or a small shelf at the library, but everything's always out. You have to reserve it, but you don't know what to reserve because you're not sure what kind of stuff you like. Mm -hmm. So kind of an opportunity for people to get together and showcase what I like, what they like. We also had a couple of, of women cartoonists like Faith Hicks there. And later ones, Raina Telgemeier was there. Uh, and there's an initial rush as all the girls come into the store to check everything out. And then after a while, it calms down into chatter. It's just folks talking about, this is what I like. This is what you like. Have you read this? Have you read that? And it's like a convention floor. Like if you're at the fan expo and you see the guys guys and girls bumping into each other at the back issues. Oh, hey, have you seen this ghost writer? No, I never read this. And you just kind of improve the community a little bit, mm -hmm. you know? And that was to, to help also encourage, I guess, more female readers because mm -hmm. everyone reads comics. And that was a big thing. And yes, there is that whole stigma of comics are just for either they're just for kids or they're just for guys or they're just but, for a certain type of person. And they're for everybody. As, and that's as, the whole. As wonderful as it is whenever there's a comic book connection on TV or movies, in many cases, they're still portrayed somewhat negatively. 
Mm-hmm. Like the guy who runs the comic book store on the Big Bang Theory is kind of a nebbish. However, everyone in the, sh- the series is like that. Everyone's kind of, you know, a caricature of themselves. You don't often get a good characterization from a comic book store. So it's kind of nice to promote something that is a little more uh, positive. Mm-hmm. And also, certainly as a bit of a media uh, event, uh, attention grabber, to just make sure people realize, oh my gosh, comics are still around. Well, that made international news within all the comic book shops. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing great accolades. People say, oh, ladies night. And we're trying this here. So you've seen it now. Yeah, this was, been, when did this start? A few, it was a few years ago, right? This was like five years ago, maybe. Five years ago. Yeah. And um, then it spread to uh, St. Louis and New York and Chicago and Austin. Uh, Toronto, Angeles, I think. Adam, Toronto, yeah. Toronto, like, we sent around information through Comics Pro and at different events, uh, just in how we set it up, how they could set it up. Uh, and everyone sort of took their own approach. And the idea is just to, it's an idea to try and get some attention, mm-hmm. to, to focus a little bit of attention on comic books and comic book stores. Whether you make it a ladies-only event, a kids-only event, you know, whatever, or maybe it's focusing on back issues. We want to do one that focuses on the artist editions, talk about original art. Um, just these kind of events that get people talking about and checking out comics, whether it's at our store or anyone's store. And this is why I've always loved your approach to comic shops. And I mean, I you know I worked with you for years, and you know you gave me my my first comic shop job back when I was just a, a punk kid. But it's it's the spirit of of comics, if you can, which you actually you got an award for that, the yeah. Eisner the yeah. Spirit of Comics Award. You won the Will Eisner Spirit of Comics Retailer Award. So for our listeners, uh, what what exactly is that award? Um, that was given out. It's still given out each year at the Eisner Awards in San Diego. It was uh, sponsored by the Eisner Awards Committee and Will Eisner himself when they were talking about setting up the awards specifically said he wanted a separate award for the comic shop owners, for the comic stores, because they're in as many cases as all the creators of comics, part of the lifeblood. They're part of the system. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a way of improving. They're, they're the forefront of the sales force. We're the ones who are out there trying to get people in the store to check out these great comics. So, and for years way, they were ignored, right? Yeah, yeah, in many cases. Yeah. And so it's a nice spot of recognition. It was the first of its kind, really. Um, there had been Eagle Awards and the ACBAs in the 70s and through the 80s. This was the first one I'd heard of that actually celebrated the comic book store. And uh, the Beguiling in Toronto uh, is a comic, is a Eisner Award winner. Um, Golden Age Collectibles in Vancouver. Several Canadian stores have won ourselves and then places like... Uh, Earth 2 and California. Yeah, it's been so great to see. And Will Eisner, obviously, the the legend who's, mm-hmm. who's passed now. Uh, but I'm sure most people listening know who Will Eisner is. And you had the chance to meet him. The, the first time I met him was in uh, San Diego. San Diego. One of the okay. Comic-Cons. And then had the chance to hang out with him in Toronto uh, to be his gopher for a visit to uh, the Silver Snail and the Royal Ontario Museum. And the nicest guy you could meet. Really up to date on everything to do with comics. He was telling, relating a story about how he was visiting Art Spiegelman, or no, his Art Spiegelman is down in Florida visiting uh, some family or for a talk, and wound up spending uh, the weekend with the Eisners, and they were up till like one in the morning talking about comic books, and 
Will's wife, Anne, had to come out and say, get to sleep. You know, you boys, put those funny books away. <laughs> so, you know, he was still very passionate about comics. Mm-hmm. And seeing him work a signing at the Snail, you know, just people nonstop, all the stories, all the talking. He was completely a professional, really engaging. Everyone walked away really charged. I asked him at dinner later about that uh, because he was just a, a remarkable work of art doing the schmoozing, pressing the flesh and really making people uh, appreciate his work. And he said, he remembers what it was like being on the other side, you know, being a fan of these terrific artists that you you grew up enjoying. And he says, he sees in their eyes, the same excitement he had when he got to meet someone like James Montgomery flag, or, you know, these big names. I mean, he's the heart and soul of comics yeah. in many cases. In my thought, there, there's a lot of great ones like Kirby and Carl Barks and Hergé and Gussini and Uderzo, George Harriman, you could go on and on. Uh, and yes, it's always a shame when an award gets nominated or named after someone and someone else might feel ignored. I don't think it's a matter of ignorance or, or slight. I think it's just celebrating one guy and his love of all comics because he was really good at promoting every kind of comic book. He had uh, great interviews in the Spirit magazine uh, and they were collected in a book called Shop Talk where he spoke to Joe Kubert and Al Jaffe and Frank Miller um, Gil Kane and talking about the craft and they're really unique interviews because they weren't from a fan perspective or a critical perspective. It was about a work environment, what it was like working in the business. So I highly encourage you to go look at them. And the Eisners, the Eisner Awards are essentially the closest thing to an Oscar award for comic books and, and which is yeah a, a great way so. to celebrate every year. What are the, what's, what are the best graphic novels? They've got so many different categories and the and, categories change each year depending mm-hmm. on the kinds of books that are out there. Like they used to have a category on painted books, but some years there's not, you know, a great painted book. Mm-hmm. So I find it's encouraging because they're not, it's not slavishly giving out awards. It's finding the best stuff and celebrating that. So 20 years in Halifax, five years in Dartmouth, 20, 23, New Brunswick. Yeah. Now, was it 1996? There was the previews comics contest and i entered yep this is a story some of our listeners may have heard before i wrote an essay the contest was why is your comic shop the world's greatest comic shop and i thought well strange adventures is definitely the world's greatest comic shop i wrote an essay about why i thought it was the best comic shop and we won and wound up getting drawn into a superman comic and that was i mean that was one of the like I would say it's one of my favorite life achievements. <laughs> I, uh, you know, being being drawn into a, to a comic book and raising the awareness of uh, of my favorite comic shop and just being a, a kid. I remember getting the phone call from Previews Magazine, and I thought it was a prank. I thought it was Mike. So Gray. did I. I yeah. thought it was Jason Beaver. <laughs> We had the same reaction yeah. where it was uh, this fellow named Marty or someone from previous Yeah, magazine. yeah, Marty Grossman, I think. And just saying, yeah, you've won. You're going to be in a comic. Which one would you like to be in? I was just like, Jason, this isn't funny anymore. And that was, yeah, amazing stuff. Yeah, I, I thought it was being pranked. And then we got put in uh, two different comics. So Adventures in Super- Adventures of Superman 547, yeah. drawn by Stuart Eminent. You can see, and here this is an Easter egg. If anyone has seen the video for Drawings with Words, I'm, I pulled that issue out of the quarter bin in, when I'm on the floor digging through a comic box. And yeah. uh, 
I say for comics no one was ordering. So that you can see that comic for yourself. Go find it in your local comic shop back issue bin. Definitely worth more than a quarter. Yep. And then the Man of Steel issue. Uh, Man of Steel 74. 74. With the shop and your dog, Baloo. Baloo, yeah. It yeah. showed the interior of the shop. Yeah. And, uh, then the exterior. Uh, that was great. And the number of newspaper stories you had. Yeah. Photos of you <laughs> having to take your shirt off to expose the Superman symbol. And, uh, you know, luckily there were still a few phone booths around. Yeah. Uh, so it turned into a lot of uh, media attention. Oh, that was so much fun. Uh, the funniest story for me that I remember getting when that weird media rush CBC called my parents looking for me in the middle of the afternoon. And my parents were like, Oh, he's, he's in school right now. And they said, no, he's not. We just called his school and he wasn't there. <laughs> so I had been skipping school that afternoon and I think I was just and hanging CBC out at the, yeah. You. Yeah. And, oh. uh, so I, I, I think I, I, I got a call. I don't know. Eventually it was the next day I got a call to the, to the principal's office and I said, yeah, CBC called looking for you. Uh, where, why weren't you in yeah. biology? It was like, oh, I had some pizza to eat over at Freeman's or something. Mm -hmm. So that was a funny thing. But then CBC wound up, we did the interview at the shop and yeah, yeah those are some fun Saint times. Pat's. Yeah. Yeah. St. Pat's high. Yeah. Funny, funny stuff. That's, I mean, that seems like, you know, part, it, Kind of seems like it was just yesterday, but it was it was a couple years ago. And well, that was probably the, you know, being in an issue of Superman was probably the the biggest comic book thing to happen, and yeah. certainly was great to sort of get us noticed. But uh, I think the best thing that happened to me was uh, finding it when Sandy came in and said, "We're having a baby." That was at the store. <laughs> That's like, amazing. Yeah, it was yeah. Right in the store. Yeah. Wow. When we found that out, it was like whoa, and uh, you know, having to get. Uh, Dave to cover me the day she was due. Yeah. And when yeah. Madison came about. So that that's, was pretty big. That's amazing. And yeah. yeah. And also just the sort of families you meet, like the the well, yourself included, the sort of kids you meet, selling them comics. As they get older, their tastes change. They they get into more of the graphic novels or the more of the art books or the you know, the different kinds of things that you still enjoy to read. And a few things for nostalgia's sake. And then they're coming in with their own kids. And picking up an Adventure Time or a My Little Pony or a Lumberjanes, and we're seeing the next generation, or in some cases, we're onto a third generation. Uh, so that's, I think, one of the most gratifying things. Yeah. Now, what do you think some of the comics are that people still haven't discovered? Invincible is probably the biggest one, I think. Yeah. Uh, it is a terrific superhero. Space one of my opera favorites. Yeah. By the writer of Walking Dead, and it is really compelling. You know, it grabs you right away, and it has been a terrific, essentially a soap opera, but it's been running 10, 12 years. Uh, there's always changes. Some of them I don't like. I love these characters, and you get a little angry with Kirkman because, how dare you kill this guy, or that you've changed this person around, or that you've, you know, had this horrible thing happen to this character that I really, you know, admire or respect. But he also makes you want to read the next issue because you want to see what happens. Yeah, that's what I love about Invincible. And I think he takes a big note from Eric Larson's Savage Dragon where you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Issue to issue, he can do whatever he wants. He has full creative control and not worried about pleasing, mm -hmm. merchandising, or, or anything like that. Out of all the thousands, probably maybe millions of comics that you've seen over the years, do you have your own personal favorites? Just something, whether they're stories from your youth or 
just the, the the books that really stick with you. I know you're a big Nexus fan, Mage. The, the Nexus stuff by Rude and Baron is one of my favorites all time. Uh, Matt Wagner's Mage is terrific, terrific stuff uh, that still hasn't had a proper collected edition done. They've messed up a couple of them, but they're well worth seeking out. Um, one of my all-time favorites is Flaming Carrot by Bob Burden. Really weird, sort of like Pee Wee Herman-esque kind of stories. Um, classic Uncle Scrooge and the Legion of Superheroes from my childhood and Tintin and Asterix are some of my all-time favorites. One of one that's really close to me is uh, Captain Quick and a Foozle by Marshall Rogers. It would make such a fun movie. What's about, that about? About a young kid. It's kind of like a Harry Potter type kid. He's uh, got a leather flying helmet that was his grandfather's. He has a cape made out of a towel. He's got these his older brother's high-top sneakers that he has taken apart all these electronic things like the ColecoVision and made them magical. And as he's putting them together on his workshop downstairs in the basement, you see this ghostly image come up behind him and it taps him in the back of the head as he's soldering the pieces together. And he's like, oops, oops, or he hiccups. And that causes, you know, this ghostly image actually helps him construct magic. And uh, then you see him try turning it on and they actually work. He, he hits the remote control that's on his belt and colors appear. Everything is gone. He's in a whole other world. He lands on top of this old guy who looks like Santa Claus, a trucker Santa Claus. He's in another dimension in another part of space. Everything is aliens. And he saved the life by falling on this guy who was about to throttle this little black bird. He looks like an all-black penguin with a big nose, like um, from Berkeley's Breathed's uh, Bloom County, Opus oh, yeah. the Penguin. Yep. He's like an all-black Opus the Penguin named the Foozle. And they go on these crazy adventures. It is terrific stuff. Marshall Rogers passed away, unfortunately, before it was really wrapped up. But there was about six issues published by Eclipse. And they are just some of the most fun and most beautiful comics you'll ever find. Were they ever collected? No. And Mage, the same dream of mine. There's, uh, well, maybe you could yeah. pull a, was, was it Whizbang? The George, Captain yeah. George Whiz? <laughs> Get in trouble for reprinting something. And, yeah. Oh, Reed Fleming, World's Toughest Milkman. One of the best comics you can ever read by Dave Boswell out of Vancouver. Um, the hard boiled adventures of a milkman who doesn't take any crap from anyone. And then winds up installing cable because he got fired. And it's one of the stories is called From Rogue to Riches. And they're just terrific tales of a guy who wants 78 cents or he'll piss on your flowers. Highly recommend some Reed Fleming. And that would make an amazing film. Reed Fleming. Yeah. And you never know. Yeah. Oh, man. Cal, thank you so much for taking the time to, to hang out on the weekend and do the pod. And, you know, on behalf of, of every comic fan everywhere the maritimes and canada and beyond i mean thank you for enriching and enlightening the minds and your enthusiasm and just improving comic book culture and supporting artists and everything you've done you've been an amazing friend and just you've just contributed so much to so many artists and just continue to keep the you know just the love of of comics alive and uh this has been super fun you know so thanks for uh thanks for hanging out it's always nice to spend the weekend at Bergie. <laughs> it's such a wonderful place up here you have in the mountains, and being invited to spend the weekend up here is, is, is 
it's just time away and it's like a little slice of heaven <laughs> and and to share the comic book love Viens petite fille dans mon comic strip viens faire des bulles viens faire des 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 et des Swing et les supercutes, ça fait, ça fait, et ça fait, ou bien, ou parfois même. Viens, petite fille, dans mon comic strip, viens faire des bulles, viens faire des, 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 et des. Par-dessus le building, ça fait quand on s'envole et puis après quoi je fais et ça fait. of the Modern Superior Media Network.